The road to space isn't paved with technology and rockets alone. It's built on the dreams, risk, and relentless spirit of those who dare look up and say, we belong there. For over 30 years, the Space Frontier Foundation has been a home for these visionary, radical, action-oriented individuals. Hear their stories, learn how space was shaped, and revel in the revolution of commercial space pioneers. Welcome back to the second half. <laughs> so we're in New York City. Yeah. Okay. Um, I testified with my brilliant idea about the astronauts and then... Um, and you're on congressional record having said this. Well, the uh, National Commission on Space. What happens then is um, I'm doing some volunteer work at SSI uh, at that point, a little bit. I became an advocate. Wow, I can't believe I just said that. I became a senior associate. All right. Now, you have to understand, the ultimate thing at the Space Studies Institute was to be a senior associate. All right, that meant you were pledging, I think, $500 over five years. Okay. You get a certificate. It was a deal. Like, people would put that on their resume. I'm a senior associate of the Space Studies Institute, right? I mean, this was, it was a deal because you're working with Dyson, you're working with O'Neill, boom, la la. And we were like the makers. There was, they didn't have that term yet, but they were like makers. So the idea was to like prove some of the technologies that would enable opening the high frontier and gradually just kind of chew away and like, so you could prove this, prove this. So like one of them was called the mass driver. Now, there was a TV show back then on PBS called Nova, and they showed Mass Driver 1. You can actually probably find it on YouTube somewhere. Um, I worked on Mass Driver 3. Now, when I say I worked on Mass Driver 3, let's clarify. And I'll, show you the picture. I'll show you the picture, which is embarrassing because it's the 80s, you know, and I'm wearing the 80s outfit. But my contribution to Mass Driver 3 was standing in the corner and handing tools to a guy named Les Snively, who was building it. Okay. Uh, Les or Wes Snively. But anyway, basically it was made out of plywood and wire. And it was basically a bunch of magnets with some coils. And when we hit the switch, the coil would shoot down the tube. Right now, Mass Driver 1 had been this long one. And you'll see this on YouTube. It's long. They do it. It's amazing. Uh, basically, it's a, a, um, a magnetic cannon. And it, there's the, the documentary, The High Frontier, the Gerard K. O'Neill story. Yeah, yeah. Featuring a number of people. The, do you know if the one that was featured in that part of the story, if that's which version that was? Was that the one with all the kids sitting in the classroom watching yeah. it in the front? Yeah, yeah. That's Mass Driver 1. Okay. Okay. Mass Driver 3 much more boring it, it only traveled i don't know like a meter or so right? okay but it was fast enough with data recording to show that we had hit 1800 gravities of acceleration which is what you need to launch a payload off the lunar surface okay so we proved the data we got the data that showed that this was a viable system and the concept here is you can take things from the moon and ship them back to earth or elsewhere earth, using this master not to earth you shoot them to the 
Lagrange point. Five point. Where there is a catcher. Right. Uh, and that's your refineries and all of that are located there. And that's where your colonies go because an L5 point is a stable point. The Lagrange points, any two body uh, system will have certain stability zones. There are five of them for each two bodies. Um, and there's uh, a couple of them that are, are quite useful to put habitats in. Basically, they're like eddies on a stream. You know what? Yep. You look at a you look at a creek, and there'll be an eddy with like where all the debris yeah, is water like flowing there. upstream. Yeah, right. And it's just kind of sitting there, and they're like they're not going anywhere. Exact That's same it. thing in, yeah. in terms of gravitational fields and overlapping uh, fields. Um, so anyway, the idea was that you would take buckets in these mass drivers, and they would just start shooting this stuff one after the other, and then they'd catch it, refine it, and utilize it to build. Now, um, so we did that. Uh, we had so much fun. Like, uh, there used to, you used to be able to buy things. There was this weird story called Radio Shack, which was like nerd paradise. A little bit like uh, Harbor Freight, but focused on electronics. All right, um, that's a good description. And, yeah, Harbor Freight, like is uh, nerd Disneyland, you know, whatever. Uh, or or DIY, DIY Disneyland. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, and so we had like little robots, and they were little little hand robots that would do stuff like this. And you would control them. And what we did was we would rewire them so they would have the a lunar delay. Right. Uh -huh. uh, basically, I'm going to get it wrong, but around 1.5, 1.3 something seconds. Um, both ways. The, communi the communication and, time that it takes for a signal yeah, to get so to the moon. Like this, and the thing goes, and then you go like this, it goes like this, and you go like this, it goes like this. And we proved with these little robots, again, DIY. Um, that you could operate robots from, on the moon from the Earth. Very simple, basic. So SSI was very brilliant at that time. The SSI that there is today is a, a pale, does not, it shouldn't even be called that, right? I'm going to get in trouble for that, but that's just how I feel. It's not the same as the way we were. Um, and senior associates included... You know, Pete Warden, Muncie, Diamandis, myself, the you know, all the founders of ISU, um, on and on. Um, and, and so here we are, we're doing this thing. And um, the other point we did at uh, Space Studies Institute was um, the advocate, uh, the associates, <laughs> so they keep slipping into foundation. There's a reason we called them advocates, by the way. Um, but the senior associates, they were, we would go to conferences and we would set up our little SSI thing with the little robotic thing. And here's what it's going to look like when we get out there and all of this. And um, we, we had a thing called tigers on the beach, sharks in the water. So what we would do is the associates would wander around or, or talk or do their lectures and drive people towards the table. And then we would sign them up at the table and, um, and get them involved. And then if they had skills, oh yeah, you know, they get plugged into one of the many different projects. And how do we build lunar regolith that is simulating the real thing? On and on and on. Um, one of the projects that I was honored enough to, to help get kickstart there was we knew, we, were, we were believed, we believed that at the bottoms of the craters north and uh, the north-south pole of the moon, that there might be uh, volatiles, frozen, ice because 
the way the poles are, the moon is locked into the Earth's gravitational field. There's a little bit of a wobble, but not much. Um, but there's ice that's never been hit by the sun. In fact, there's some of the coldest places in the solar system would be those craters and their equivalent on other, uh, yeah. some people forget to say that, other moons. Um, and we were like, maybe there's ice there because that's gold. Because otherwise, the soil of the moon, the regolith, as we call it, is basically drier than concrete. I mean, concrete sure. is, like, is like swamp mud compared to moon, to moon dust, right? Yeah. Um, and so what would happen would be we're like, okay, how do we get there? Or what, what happened was that we were like, how do we find that? So we were, gonna, um, we were going to fly a probe. Now, side note, Jerry O'Neill was a genius. He had come up with a device that it was an amazing device, man. You put it on a thing um, and it's a little electronic box and it uses satellites and anywhere you go on the earth, it'll tell you where you are. I know. Crazy, huh? Like, like a compass that uses satellites? It was geolocation. Okay, but this is 1980s, right? This is brand new stuff. He, he comes up with this device. His company was called uh, Geostar. Jerry gives a massive amount of the shares of Geostar to the Space Studies Institute. I'm going to say 50%, maybe more. And at the time, the idea was that you would take these Geostar modules and put them on shipping containers and train cars and ships and you could track your freight anywhere in the world and his partner was uh martin rothblatt and so what happened was we were thinking we're about to have some money here you know and again i'm a volunteer at this point right? senior associate volunteer senior associate volunteer in the office Okay. So I'm more than just a senior associate. I'm actually volunteering in the office. I started a reverse commute from New York City in a very beat up old Volkswagen that a friend of mine, a guy named Greg Marinak, who was Jerry O'Neill's right hand man, gave me or sold me for like a couple hundred bucks. I mean, this thing was so bad. You could see the concrete through the floorboard. Um, but it gave me enough mobility to be able to commute. I had gone to Dr. O'Neill's. Dr. O'Neill and I said, look, I will do anything to work with you. I will sweep the floors. And I'm saying this because it's a lesson. Yeah. I said, just let me hang out. Just <laughs> let me do something to help. And so I started a reverse commute to Princeton and eventually started on salary um, and eventually became media director and a little bit more than that, this and that and the other. Um, I was just so like amazed to be there. What was going on was that we were like, okay, we need to get this, this idea of ice. Is there ice? And so a bunch of the senior associates go to an L5 conference in Pittsburgh. And we mapped it out. We plotted. And so we put some shills in the audience. Right. And then Greg Marinek and I give this speech. And I was starting to realize that, hey, you know, I can kind of talk a little bit in public. Eh, maybe this will work, you know. And so I get out there and I'm like, we got to get to the moon. And we're showing pictures and we have this, this guy named um, Jim French. Mm -hmm. 
who designed the early motors for Blue Origin later. Jim French, amazingly brilliant gentleman. Uh, and we were going to do an ion thruster that would be shot out of a space shuttle on what was called a gas can. Basically a 55-gallon drum in the back of the shuttle bay with a spring on it. And then we use an ion thruster. You know, everybody's trying to sell thrusters now. So yep. and it would spiral its way out to the moon and orbit the moon and poke down and look in those craters. And so I'm like, we got to go. Da, 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 da. And, you know, let's get this thing started. And one of our senior associates in the back of the room goes, I'll give 50 bucks. And another was like, I'll give 50 bucks. And I forgot what we raised, a few hundred dollars at that point, $300. And um, then we ended up holding a conference in uh, Houston and had some really good people come down. Um, and it was the first, and I, I have the poster, um, and it was the first ever uh, Lunar Orbiter conference. It had the old design on it. And so we basically started the project and we kept it alive and we lobbied for it and we pushed for it. And eventually, I think it was Grumman went with it and built the Lunar Prospector that actually was flown and was the first thing, first system. So we actually started that project from SSI. Mm, all right. The problem was, the reason we started it was we were thinking Geostar was going to be this mega company and we were going to have a load of money yep, yep and we were going to be able to fly this thing ourselves but we didn't it didn't happen the company internal stuff i won't get into that didn't work out and Space hard. <laughs> and so what happened was we decided to just go ahead and keep it alive lobby for it push for it yeah and um eventually um another gentleman caught fire on it he ended up building it with grumman very interesting side story. In DOD at the time, remember I told you Star Wars? Yep. And L5 splits apart. So there's a young colonel in that organization named Pete Warden. Pete Warden, remember that name? So Pete Warden, who is an O'Neillian and a senior associate, he's working in the SDIO. Strategic Defense Initiative Organization. The idea of that was to, how do we shut down Soviet nuclear rocket ships, right. rockets, before they launch? How do, we, how do we tell when they're going to launch? Well, one of the ideal ways to do that from space is to do thermal monitoring and monitor for when the cryogenic propellant is being transferred from the truck to the launch vehicle. So not the fire of launch, mm -mm. the cold. Yes. Of loading. Yes. Well before the fire. Right. Got to load before you. Yeah. yeah. Well, right. they're figuring out how do we, how do we, how do we do this? Yeah. This is one of the probably two. There's two great connivances in, in the history of our field, I think. That, that are positive in their own way. There's Pete Warden getting DOD to pay for us to discover ice on the moon and Peter Diamandis and the X Prize. 
these are the two great connivances in our field that have been amazing and, and made great things happen. Peter, a whole different story will come there next time. Someday. Anyway, the point is, he goes into DOD and he convinces them that we need to do this test to see about you know these really cold cryo things. How about we fly an orbiter around the moon and look down in the craters and see if there's some ice there? And he got the Defense Department, the Star Wars program, to pay for the lunar orbiter. Ours was Prospector, his was the orbiter. And wow. it was called Clementine. And it had a sub-satellite called O'Neill. Right? So he pulled that off. So we verified that there was something like hydrogen something. We were picking up something. And then he follows immediately with this and verifies it to the nth degree. Boom, we got it. There was ice in the craters at the bottom of the moon. It was fracking brilliant. Brilliant. That's why Pete Warden is... And that's only one of 100 things he's done to help us get going. So then um, during this period of time, the L5, uh, L5 is happening. We're running that. L5 is trying to be merged. The Boeing and these guys are trying to buy the organizations. And right, the, right, right. The space station and the shuttle. And the last meeting of the National Space Commission is occurring in uh, New York City, one of the last ones. They're, they're doing a road show right before they wrap it up. Okay. what a lot of commissions do. Yeah. You know, they hold their hearings in Washington, and then they take it on the road, and they come back, and they write their volume. Right. They're in New York City. And, um, and so <laughs> we go to see this, and Betty Grieber, who was the assistant to Dr. O'Neill, the, we called them the ladies. There were these two and three ladies who ran the Space Studies Institute in Princeton. She tells myself... And I think Jim Muncie, who was working with us more and more at the Institute, um, that we need to be looking for a guy named Bob Werb, who was a big donor to the Institute. Mm. And he had driven himself uh, there, I think in his pickup truck, if I recall, uh, to see the commission. Now, I'm there, and, and I think in, at that hearing also upstairs in the room is a lady named Lori Garver from D.C., um, and we go up, um, so anyway, we go into the hearing, we hear the last part of it, I end up, uh, I think I got him to give me a ride home or something, and I'm in the, the truck with, uh, Bob Werb, and start talking about, um, trying to activate him a little bit more for SSI, and he, he gets more and more involved. In the meantime, we have the L5 Society. And they're getting ready to join this National Space Institute. I am starting to get disillusioned. And why is that? I'm starting to gain knowledge. I'm starting to understand the system. I'm starting to realize, you know, this shuttle thing is a scam. You know, um, I'm starting to realize pork barrel. There's a guy named Steve Wolf at this time who was on the legislative assistant of the congressman from California named George Brown. Okay. Steve, also an O'Neillian, is working on uh, how to get 
a new law passed called the Space Settlement Act of 1988. I get put on, at request, I get put on sort of a leave of absence and I go to DC and I get schooled, basically. I get apprenticed to Steve Wolf about how things happen in DC, how things work. And there's Muncie's. Now, at this point, Jim Muncie is a staffer down there. And I'm just learning. I'm learning and learning and learning. These guys are pros. Muncie's a pro. This guy's a pro. They're amazing. I'm just picking it up, sucking it in, learning my way around. But I'm really starting to get disillusioned. And Muncie and I, we had a study in Princeton, a, a, like a one or two day thing. Amazing art. We had this guy named Pat Rawlings, one of the best space artists of the time. He's drawing all these renderings and Diamandis was there. I was there. These guys, all of us were there. Dyson, all of us. It was like a one day lock away in a corporate retreat to come up with cool stuff and technologies. Um, and coming out of that, I'm, I'm getting to know Muncie more. Um, what happens is um, there's this merger going on, and I'm like, you know what? This is not. No, we don't want. We don't. And 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 then we're all. <laughs> we got into a debate with uh, the the L5 folks. I think it was a guy named Greg Barr at that time, was running L5. Great guy. More later, he becomes one of the founding members of Space Frontier. And we have this debate because they want to call it the National Space something. And we're like, no, 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 no. It should be called the Space Frontier Society. Mm -hmm. the, the NSI and L5, as they come together, you're going to pick a new name. Called the Space Frontier Society. Yeah. Yeah. I, we even rendered it. Now, I, I have to take a quick side note here. You're going to see me holding up graphics like this. And, and I'll come to some others with Space Frontier, like our, our magazine later here. Um, one of the cool long-term people who's behind us is a guy named Peter Thorpe. You'll hear his name later. He designed all of our logos. I still work with him. He designed the real logo of the foundation. Um, an amazing artist, so you're gonna hear his work. Um, he was one of the people that encouraged me to charge dues, you know, and, and all of that. Um, but anyway, we, we actually rendered these things. There's actually designs of the original logos, ah. the organization, all this. I have it all. Well, Peter has it all. Peter has saves everything. Um, and so we're saying Space Frontier Society. They're saying, no, no, no. In the meantime, because it's very important you understand, the creation of the Space Frontier Foundation was not a reaction to the merger of L5 and National Space Institute. What it was, was Muncie and Werb and I eventually, and I'll come back to that in a minute, some of us, let's say, being dissatisfied with the level of activism of the Space Studies Institute, which it never should do anyway. It was right. supposed to be like granite. It's supposed to be solid, yeah. non-activist, but by God, you know, in my case, but in particular, I'm sort of get pissed off. I'm like, guys, you know, and again, two years earlier, astronauts on Jay Leno will solve the problem. And I'm starting to realize, no, the emperor's got no freaking clothes, man. 
BS. And I'm starting to get really upset about it. So at this point, I'm, I'm thinking, okay, we're going to, I'm going to bail out of this thing that's being created. I need to come up with something. I, I, I won't. So I start what I call my, I think it was six months, almost a year in, in the wilderness. Well, I'm not sure what, what's next, what's going to happen. This is around 87. Okay. 1987. National Commission on Space, 1986. 1987. Um, I am working at SSI now. I'm on salary, getting paid. And, and yet I'm starting to get angry. I'm like, we've got to do something more. There needs to be a voice, a radical, not radical, but an activist voice for the O'Neillian vision. Because it's getting just steamrolled by the, the military industrial. and Which is, you know, we are the government, but we are going to do it for you. And you'll be very proud of us as we go into space. Anyway, don't get me started. So there we are. I'm starting to get a look. And so Muncie, who is at this point, um, I think by this point he is working for a congressman named Dana, Ro Dana Robacher from California. I think he's already there at that point. Um, he's trying to help me out. And he's directing me around. And I'm coming up with like, okay, what do we call this thing? And he tells me about one of his Republican buddies down in D.C. And I remember going down to D.C. and going to the guy's house. And this guy had started something at the time. Um, it was called like the American Space Institute or something. It was called AmSpace. AmSpace. Okay. The draft logo at some Not point. Amway, but AmSpace. Okay. Yeah, I know, I know. It was, this is a discovery process. Yep. Um, and so I, I, I like have the graphics to show you where I'm sitting around at Peter Thorpe's house where I used to hang out five nights a week or his, uh, it was his, uh, his studio on Park Avenue South, which was like Artist Central in New York City. And I was the space guy. And this is where I learned graphics. And so I was hanging out with these guys. And so AmSpace, no, nah, that's not going to work. And then we went through all these other iterations, you know, the space society, because they weren't going to take it, you know, um, and then on and on. And like, why do we call? And so come up eventually with this thing called Space Frontier Foundation. And again, you'll see the iteration, the graphics as we yeah. sit around drinking our Bud Light and, and coming up with this idea. And Part of it was like, okay, we want something that sounds solid. We like the foundation trilogy. And it needs to be very forward leaning. It needs to, but have this sort of reawakening of the pioneer spirit, all of this rolled into one. Um, so the logo itself, which was very telling Right. That's that's the logo that was chosen very on purpose. And the reason we came up with that logo was a sort of retro future. Now, the reason it's that rocket is that shape is it is reminiscent of the Von Braun 1950s style rocket. But we didn't know a rocket ship, excuse me. Um, we didn't know what 
the winning design would be, right? So we went with this in black and gold, which is my favorite color. It shows up in some of my other projects. Like uh, I worked with some guys on a moon project called Lunacorp, uh, things like that. And um, so we started this organization, started putting it together, but I couldn't quite figure it out. And then at one point, and I am, I will leave this um, partially to Bob Werb, partially to Jim Muncy, because I'm sure they're, their um, their level of detail is better than mine at this point. Um, but the three of us found each other. And I want to, oh my God, you want to talk about like, is, a, go ahead. So that's why you're called founders, because you found each other? I'll go with it. I, I'll go with it. Um, so, know, I just have this thing about calling people co-founders who start something uh, basically on an equal level. Yeah. All right. uh, I don't like co-creator, blah, blah, blah. Founders. There's no reason. You, that you have together, to you are. Founders. You could all yeah. be founders. Right. Bob Warb, Jim Muncy, and I are the founders of the Space Frontier Foundation. Okay. Now, I got out there a little earlier. And, the, um, you know, I, I kind of started it. But unless these two gentlemen had shown up, I would have been like, oh, squirrel. You know, and yeah. I would have gone off and done something else. Right, it would have fallen apart. I kind of accepted it a little bit. I wandered around. I, again, it might have been called Amspace if I had, you know, the 501c3 status had come from this guy, uh, all of this stuff. Um, there was something that happened there and it just didn't, it didn't sit right with me or whatever. Um, but again, found these guys, the three of us come together. Um, but we, we come together and we bring bring into the existence this organization. Um, I call, we call the first meeting in, um, in New York City in the Intrepid. Um, I have a photograph of it actually. Um, and we bring in some people from the L5 world who are by this point, like Greg Barr who had run the L5, and, and his, uh, his amazing lady, um, these folks, um, they come, there's a guy named Tim Kiger, a guy named Gary Olson. Um, these folks all show up, I want to say about a dozen. Um, and we meet on the Intrepid and we basically kick it into gear and we start, start rolling. And th this thing that you're kicking is it has grown out of this support for space from these other organizations mixed with your realization and disillusionment that the space future, the Roddenberry O'Neillian future, like the, the connective tissue, the underpants gnomes version of like, first we're going to have shuttle, then we're going to have, living in space, that in-between part you realize doesn't hold. The aerospace industrial complex was selling us a bill of goods and wasn't going in that direction. And somebody needed to speak truth to power. And, and we decided to take that on. And we no one else had a vested interest in it, right? Because there's no there wasn't another opposing articulated view. There wasn't any, like people didn't know to 
care? Is that why? People didn't care. They didn't understand. They didn't know. They were off in their own world. The National Space Institute people, Boeing, had bought out the L5 Society. I, you will note that from that day on, when those two merged, they never met a NASA project that they didn't like for 25 years. In fact, I don't even know if they've ever come out against a NASA project. Against. Yeah. Major I mean, NASA program. But it's hard to be against a NASA program, especially in the 80s. Dude, right? I mean, there's a reason I'm not a billionaire. Yeah. Right? I mean, yes, there was, yes. yes. The most popular brand in the entire federal government yeah. is NASA. Right. And, and you are forming an organization yeah. to complain about them. No, not to complain. Not at all. Not at all. We are forming an organization to try and speak to the rational side of these folks who are out there supporting a government agency that has been hijacked to become a pork producer for aerospace companies in a period where there is a lack of leadership that understands what is possible and what we can do on the frontier. This is the problem. What was and happening at this point in the late 80s was, keep in mind, we're, now we're heading, we're getting closer and closer to a very important date, 1989. The 20th anniversary of Apollo is coming up towards us. Okay. Right, 20 years since we walked on the moon, program's been canceled. We are a generation of Apollo's children who have come up watching this, like me sitting on the floor, watching that science fiction, watching these astronauts fly into space and it's yanked out from us and we're lied to. And they try and buy us. And some of us get a little bit pissed off about that. Because you know what? Dr. O'Neill has shown us a way forward that is inclusive, that is open, that is grand, that is exciting, that is positive, that is peaceful, that is beautiful and inspiring. And we're being told that this thing that they're doing is going to take us there. But it's not. It has nothing to do with it. All it has to do with is cranking money into these aerospace companies and NASA centers and feeding politicians. But like, yeah. so this sounds like that high school kid who knew more than his teachers. Like what, what I, it's great that some professor has some ideas about tin cans in space, but what the hell do these normal people know about the rarefied air of space? Like what grounds, like, how do you challenge that? And I, I'm obviously taking a, a, the, the opinion of people who might be opposed to it. Now, today it makes per, it makes perfect sense that you would have 
entrepreneurship unlocking value of space. But at that time, this is before the dot-com, like all that stuff hasn't arrived yet. So you don't even have the the example to point to of say, hey, look, here was a technology that was government that then now is transitioning and is remaking the economy. That doesn't exist yet. What were you pointing to to say there is, okay, so there's this other world, another way, but you're going up against the thing that is everybody loves. Yeah, ain't we? Ain't we? How did so look, it's like Liam Neeson, you know, in the in those uh, kidnapped <laughs> movies. He's like, I have certain skills. Yep. All right. So incidentally, by accident, by the flow of time, I've got certain skills. All right. Bob Werb comes in. Bob Werb was the foundation of the foundation, right? He literally, God, I hate using that word. It's so easy to use, and we overuse it all the time. But Bob Werb says to Muncie and I, you guys are going to be in front. I'm going to be back here making sure the, sh the machine operates. All right? Muncie's got the, the amazing savvy and understanding of the Hill and politics and policies. I'm an idiot who's willing to run out and scream at dinosaurs and 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 just you know charge i'm go let's go man let's go i got the texas thing i got the the little asthmatic angry kid it's all in there thank you you, you identify all of that those that's my skill set right i don't know enough to stop sometimes i just go but we're doing it in an informed fashion and all that's right. the beauty of the foundation right so yeah, we're angry. But the, and by the way, Jim Muncie, right-wing Republican. Bob Werb, upper New York, left-wing, liberally-oriented kind of guy, but more on the left. You know, a wealthy Jewish real estate family from upper Nyack area, or upper New York area, that kind of thing, um, which you know about if you're a New York, Northeastern person, that, that, that area. Um, and then there's me, the crazy guy from Texas and in England or whatever, right? So the three of us could not be more different. By the way, I should tell you, for the first, I want to say 30 years of our interaction, we had an agreement to never talk politics, and we never did. We would never talk anything political outside of how do we get this done? Because right. we were dedicated to a cause. We were dedicated to winning, not being right. There's a difference. Yeah. All right. And so what happened was we go out and we start this organization. We're like, okay, how do we get this thing going? Well, one of the things we were doing is, again, I'll take you back to it. 1989 is coming, the Apollo anniversary. How do we build an organization? And by the way, we had all studied organizations. This isn't like random acts of stupidity. Right. <laughs> it's all like very carefully done, cross-checked by three very different guys. And then the other people, wonderful people who came in, uh, Greg Olson, Barr, Kiger, all of these other folks who come in and, and work with us. 
uh, Lisa Sisti Wynn, some other folks, uh, I, I got him, uh, I want to say Griffin, uh, the gentleman who was a lawyer in Atlanta who registered us, set yep. us up. All these people come together, all different. We leave politics at the door. There's a lesson there. Politics at the door. We have one vision. How do we enable realization of Jerry's vision on the frontier in an inclusive, economically viable fashion for everybody? That's the goal. And then again, Pete Warden, Diamandis, all these people, same thing. So we're like, how do we do that? Well, hmm, why don't we do a petition? So if we do a petition, then that gives us, by the way, pre-internet. Yeah, I was going to say, you're not going to change.org. This is old school petition with a clipboard standing by the metro or the subway. Yep. Excuse me, sir. Can I talk to you for a minute about space settlement? Yeah, with one of these weird, what is this thing? Oh, yeah. A pen. I know, right? Right? Ink. Right? So anyway, one by one, we're collecting these names. Why is that important? Because it enables a conversation with the human who's signing. So now we're starting to get some people on board who are like, hey, I, I really like this. Can you tell me more? And we're starting to grow that. So then, as we're getting close, Thorpe and I come up with this wacky thing. Um, this is our first brochure. Uh. Now, think about this for a second. This is before anybody, you just said it, nobody criticizes NASA, da, 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 da. We've got a picture of who is now my friend, Buzz Aldrin, on the moon, and says, never again. And you're like, you're supposed to react. Like, what the heck? Yeah. I'm going to stick that in your hand when you're signing or whatever. Well, then you open it. Mm. Next time we stay. So this is 1988, 89. Mm. This is the first piece of foundation literature. So we're handing this to people. And it is like, yeah. While the NASA program has done incredible things in exploration, I'm skipping through, it hasn't opened the space frontier to a large number of Americans. We don't need to spend more money. We need to stop wasting it on stunts and dead ends. I'm reading the highlighted parts. We're ignoring the strengths of ingenuity and entrepreneurship that made this country great. The frontier was opened by the energies and determination of free people, not short-sighted and self-serving bureaucrats and politicians. There is still no NASA plan for you or your children to go ever. Still isn't, I would say, right? You're right there, bro. That's not their mission. That's not their objective. A space station leading into the next battle. A space station that is too little, too late, and too expensive isn't good enough. A government-designed and operated second-generation space shuttle isn't good enough. A tiny lunar brace for a few elite researchers in 20 or 30 years isn't good enough. America must return to the moon, this time to stay this time to go. We must replace the hollow slogans of the past with a commitment to begin the true settlement of space today. 
1988. If not now, when? If not us, who? We need your help to get blah, 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 right? So this is our first brochure. Now, we also wrote our slogan, our uh, credo. We spent a lot of time writing this sucker. The Space Frontier Foundation is a grassroots organization of American citizens dedicated to opening the high frontier of space to human exploration and settlement as rapidly, ra rapidly as possible. I might write that a little differently now, but that's how I wrote it then. Yeah. And, and again, this went through all of this. Everybody worked on it. Right? Stand test. Go on. I would say I wouldn't use American. I would say people. I would say communities, blah, blah, blah. But it's the same thing. It's 35 years old. Yeah, exactly. And it's still very true today. So continue. Yeah. There's more to it than that. Our goals include, and this is where we're ahead of our time, the protection of Earth's fragile biosphere and the creation of a better and more prosperous life for each generation by utilizing the unlimited energy and material resources of space. We were the first green space organization, period, period. Our purpose is to unleash and is to ensure that our nation unleash the energy and imagination of American free enterprise to lead a united humanity into the solar system. Oh, and at this point, we were still at the intrepid Air, Sea, and Space Museum. That was our headquarters. So we put a lot of time into this. And it was so, I can't stress how important it was that we were all so different on this team. Because that would have not been written by a homogeneous team of people that had one point of view. Nope. Period, right? Now, ethnically, culturally, probably could do better and would work harder to do better today. The new Space Frontier as it is today, I'm so proud of it because it does that as part of its charter. Fantastic. And we worked with who we had. And the organization today exists because of the foundation that was set up. Um, and I got, I've had plenty of strategic analysis of organizations and all the rest of it. And this credo stands the test of time in a way that few that I have seen, like it says something substantial, tangible, but also does it in a way that has longevity. So, that's because it's short. Thank, too. I mean, thank you for giving it. it yeah. and, and it's by not way, three words short. Right. So, by the way, then around the same time, we had our uh, we had our magazine, which we the Space Front. Oh, all right. Right, Space Front. I don't know historically when you have a front. That's a that's a political uh, agitation yep. organization. Um, this one's from 95. Peter Thorpe, again, putting out one of our T-shirts. Crawl, walk, orbit. The first step to going up, to growing up, is going up. Uh, and, nice. Yeah, and so there we were. And, you know, it's, this was in the 90s, by the way, this thing. Um, the moon is the next commercial space opportunity, 1995. 
Um, this is, oh, this is when I got, uh, I got drafted to be on the first board of the X Prize. Uh, all right. Article about me joining the X Prize. So anyway, the team was there and we had all these great people on board. Um, and the foundation starts to, to do its thing. So right after this, we get this petition and one of our friends is actually in the Bush White House, George Bush the first. Um, he gets, maybe not physically, we got 40,000 signatures. He gets the petition in or word of it in to the president's office, to the Oval Office. The president's kind of going back and forth on this idea of announcing a return to the moon as his 1989 thing. And he hears about this, it's like, ah, and we're told that it's one of the clinchers. And he says, okay, we're going to do this. You know, there's a 40,000 petition. Again, back then, that was a big deal. Someone cares enough to get that much ink on a page. Yeah. And again, not, I, I don't want to overstress our importance, but sometimes when you come in at a tipping point and you're that last straw, yep. all it takes, right? You don't have to fill the scale. You have to be the last grain of sand that tips it. And that was the role we played repeatedly. Okay. And so he makes the announcement at the Air and Space Museum, I remember. And um, NASA and the centers and aerospace respond true to form. Suddenly, everything they're doing has moon in it. And it's called the kitchen sink budget that was handed back to the White House and it sank the program, right? They were trying to get, everybody wanted it, everybody, you know. That's the thing, everybody in, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I'm working on flushable toilets for the moon. I'm working on cars for the moon. I'm working on whatever, yep. you know. Um, and so that killed it. So then we're rolling along with this. And at the same time, we're starting to realize, you know what, there's, there's the space station thing. So oh, yeah. you're su successful in getting Moon to the national agenda, but it kills itself immediately because what you, you lit the match, but there's no oxygen in the room left. Right. Okay. We lit the match and it's self-immolated. Yeah, all right. Um, yeah, there's <laughs> too much oxygen. Yeah, it all goes at, at once. Yeah, and, and so this is just, excuse my language, but it's just pissing us off more. Sure. We're like, come on, guys. I mean, you know, this, that was kind of neutral, right? Let's return to the moon. Hey, because who was going to do so, it? NASA, private sector, whatever. So at this point, you're kind of, you've got a direction, but the direction isn't enough because the methods have to be there as well. And we are... We're gradually, we know in our hearts that the government shouldn't be building buildings, driving trucks and doing these things, but we haven't yet gelled the industry. There's no industry yet. Right. There's no private sector saying, let's go do this. A little bit here and there. Yeah. Sparks. There was but it's guy, most. Uh, there was a guy at the time, uh, uh, somewhere in there, I'm, I'm getting the timeline wrong. He was going to try and buy the shuttle and do a private thing. And um, and some and other there, little spark. Plenty of 
companies that would form would would announce launch companies long before SpaceX, right? There is an entire. Oh, we're not there yet. We're still not there yet. No, no, yeah, but so talk. It's coming, but it's not there yet. This is early '90s. Okay. This is way early '90s. We're all still using traditional methodologies, traditional systems, working within the system. Like my buddy, Diamandis um, and Todd Hawley, for example. I work with them because, remember, I had the video skills, whatever. In uh, 89, 88, 89, and 90 and 91 or 92, um, and I shoot a bunch of videos with them. By the way, one of them, the 92 one you can see on YouTube, we were the first crew ever allowed on the set of Star Trek Next Generation. And we have Marina Sirtis, the counselor, Counselor Troy, um, and she's doing it. And we're working with Arthur C. Clarke and a whole so, so many freaking stories in the Space City. But uh, anyway, the point is they're doing it through traditional institutions too, right? None of us have really gone commercial yet, okay. privately or ourselves. It's, we're still getting there. We're still learning. Um, this is, I think, uh, Deke Slayton, Conestoga. These guys are out there, but it hasn't happened. So okay. then around early 90s, you know, again, we're trying. We're trying to use the existing structures. It's not happening. And then we're like, you know, we're looking at the space station. It's not turning out the way we were promised. Remember, Reagan said, like, 92, $8 billion dollars. Not happening. Not happening at all. ISS is not born yet. It's called Freedom still. And it's just not happening. It's going, the money is pouring in and nothing is happening. And we've been sold. And if you look at that 1986 report to President Reagan, the station was going to be a port to the solar system. That was how it was sold. Again, we sold the lie that the shuttle is going to get us there so cheaply. Then we yeah. saw another lie that the space station is going to be a port, a jumping off point for mass transportation and da 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 off out into the solar system. Go look at the artwork that was in that thing. Right. Sounds great. And I think the commissioners really believed all that. You know, it's from your mouth to NASA's ears via a lobbyist. <laughs> so what happened? An aerospace lobbyist. And so what happens is we're starting to go, okay, this isn't this is not this is not happening the way it's supposed to happen and so we start coming out against the space station so we've tried it we've worked with the president got there nothing happened now we're starting to get our act together and really start coming out we start issuing our first press releases we start doing our first calls for action we start saying the emperor has no clothes. And I remember at one point there was a guy named Bill Broad from the New York Times. And he reaches out. Now, remember, back then, we used to use a thing called a fax machine. And you would send sheets of paper, and they would be scanned, and another sheet would be printed at the other end. And that was how you sent messaging, right, back and forth. Bill Broad reaches out and says, who are you guys? <laughs> what are you, some guy with a fax machine? I responded, no, there's two guys with a fax machine. 
Muncie and I cranking it out, right? And we're starting to call it. And I, I, I've got to go back and look. I don't remember what our first press release was, but it was definitely in your face. And we start calling for um, different things. Mainly, we were calling for the cancellation of the space station because we did not believe the government should build buildings. There was no industry yet. Yeah. We, this was a hopeful thing, but we knew the government shouldn't do it and they shouldn't drive trucks, right? And so we're pushing against the space station. Now, at the time, the only, one of the only times the Space Studies Institute has ever engaged, ever did engage in anything nearly political was to work with some New Jersey Senator, uh, Congress people, I think. And then we're working it on the Hill and we're trying to kill the space station. This is 92-ish. But there's a vote in Congress around that time, mid 90s. Actually, we're moving to 93, 94 now. And in that vote, the foundation, again, remember that grain of sand that tilts the thing? Doesn't have to be the whole pile of sand. Right. We tip enough Congress people our way that we almost kill the space station by one vote. Or as my friends in NASA say, they saved the station by one by one vote. vote. Yeah. We're all friends now, by the way. Except that one guy. Um, so we get in there and we've almost killed it and we're working with the, I'm just going to say legislator. I think it was a congressman from New Jersey. And, um, we're just working it, you know, and trying to make it happen in such a way that the government, for example, would put out contracts to have these orbital buildings built and all of that. Yes, and so it is not a space station that you're objecting to. It is not the concept. It is not the idea. It's not space in general. It is the method by which we are going and doing these things that you realize that it's not, it's not just, again, like the, the petition drive, you said, hey, this should be the thing to focus on but how it was going to be implemented fell apart. Here you're going after the, sh the, the station because it's not going to be, it is not a sustainable system. It's not something that, has, there is no good rational thing we can point to in history that says, yes. And I guess there, there are times when the government needs to go in and set up an initial thing, but if it's going to go and serve more than just a one use or a one time thing, that's where it's got to be something more. Nowhere ever, except for the one time that Steve Wolf, oh, I should mention that. So Steve Wolf passes the Space Settlement Act. So there is literally a law in 1988 saying that NASA thou shalt be judged on the work you are doing to enable the settlement of space by u.s citizens and what a great spot to pause this conversation and pick it up again in part three